Again, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. Actually, we're going to try to get through two chapters. I've never done that before. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because uh, next week, Corey speaks. And then the week after that, I speak, which is the last week in August. And then uh, I'll have three or four weeks off. Well, it's missions. There's, there's different speakers and then missions. So I just decide I want to finish Nehemiah. So we're going to finish it, even if we have to be here till three. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Let, me, let me also point a couple things out in the bulletin. Um, well, just one thing. At the bottom of the first page, it says, if you'd like to pray for Pastor Prince on a regular basis, uh, for current uh, requests, please contact him. Uh, what I'm saying is this. There's a number of things that I really need to, to do. I, even though there's going to be four or five different speakers, it's not like I'm just taking off. I've got some projects I've got to get done, projects that have to do with the church, that, and it just gives me some time before the startup of September. But if you say, you know, I'd like to pray for you specifically, I'm going to send out different, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of days, that type of thing. So if you're interested uh, just send me an email. Just say, I'd like to pray for you. Jay, you know, it's jprince at aabible.org. Uh, some of you uh, asked, I mean, said that you'd be praying for me since last year, and I trust that you are uh, from the uh, missions conference. Uh, I'm going to also send anybody that uh, signed up last October, you'll also be included in there. So if, if you're interested in that, and, and actually I'd like to build on that. Um, sometimes, I mean, I'm assuming you're praying for me, but if you'd like to know specifics, then just, I can do it through email. And if you say, well, I don't have an email, uh, I'll have to try to work something else out. But that's how I was planning on doing it. Nehemiah chapter 11. Um, this is where uh, Nehemiah is going to repopulate Jerusalem. And just to kind of get an overview, uh, if you have a, a study Bible, it might actually lay this out as such. But let's just kind of get the big picture. Um, in chapter 1, remember his brother Hanai comes and tells uh, Nehemiah, in, again, Nehemiah is in, um, in Persia, and he tells them that, you know, five, six hundred miles away, Jerusalem, that it's in disrepair. That the temple had been started, but the actual walls were in disrepair. And that happened most likely in 446 B.C. in November, November, December, okay? He takes a number of months to pray. So now we're getting into March, and he approaches the king. Remember when the king said, why are you sad? And, and then, you know, fear in his heart, and, and uh, he said, well, you know, my, the city. He didn't even call it Jerusalem. But the point was, is and, uh, Artaxerxes gave him permission to go and rebuild the walls. By the way, that's a very important date, 445 B.C., uh, that March date, because the decree of Artaxerxes starts the Jewish uh, clock, Daniel chapter 9. The decree to rebuild the wall starts right then. This is a very, very critical point. So again, November he hears of the disrepair. In March he is given permission to go back. He takes between one and two months depending on the route. And in July he starts the wall. Remember he gets to the city, takes three days, walks around it, basically figures it out. Calls the people together. They're all ready to work. Chapter 3, they work. Chapter 4, 5, and 6, you see uh, four, five, and six, you see opposition. That's all happening in the month of July and August. And by the end, or middle of September, or August, and by the middle of August, 
They complete the wall. In what? How many days? 52. Very quick. See, all this stuff is happening very quick. We've taken months to, uh, to go through this. But this whole process from, from November-ish, and I say November-ish because it doesn't actually identify the date, till now, July, somewhere in August, the wall is finally completed. The seventh month, Tishri, comes. That's where they start reading the book, chapter 8. They hear the word of God. They understand the word of God. They weep over the word of God, but then they rejoice and they celebrate on the first day of the month the, the Feast of Trumpets. Fourteen days later, the Feast of Tabernacles. See, everything's happening very quickly. Chapter 9, they, uh, they confess their sins. Chapter 10, which we looked at last week, they actually, because they've heard the Word of God, by the way, they heard the Word of God over and over again. It says that uh, not all the, the, the people heard it on the second day, but the leaders heard it. The leaders heard the Word of God, explained, heard and explained, and then they brought it back to the people. And by chapter 10, they make a commitment, a covenant. This is what we plan on doing. They wrote their names down. At least some of them did. A covenant in writing, chapter 9, verse 38, and then chapter 10 is the, all the different specifics of the covenant that we looked at. And a key word of that covenant is sacrifice. Sacrifice. We will do, even if it, even if it hurts, <laughs> we will do what you have told us to do, Lord. And when we serve God, we have to look at it that way. Many times it, it is hard to serve God. Because one of the things that God wants us to do is to serve with people. <laughs> and anytime you work with people, it's hard. Is that true? A bunch of sinners. It's, it's a time that's very, very difficult. So, and, and all that happened because they're always back. And we spent a lot of time on the awe of God. I mean, the word of God was hitting their heart and they were responding to it. And the, the God of the word. I mean, all of chapter 9 was basically, even though they were confessing their sin, it was all about God. All about God. God's faithfulness, God's graciousness, God's compassion, God's love, God's forbearance. You know, you see God big, and what else can you do but, you know, with a contrite heart say, Lord, thank you for saving me, and Lord, I want to walk with you. Here am I, send me. So... So now we, the people's hearts are prepared. See, the wall has been finished. Gates are being put up. And now the hearts of the people are prepared. They've heard the word of God. They've confessed their sin. They've seen the greatness of God. They've made their commitment. And what's the next in the natural step? Well, now we've got to get people into Jerusalem. Because in chapter four, uh, 7, verse 4, it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Well, again, comparatively few people lived in Jerusalem because of the rubble in the city. I mean, it had been destroyed for uh, more than 100 years before. It was 586 that uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed um, Jerusalem. All right? Now this is 446. So again, it's, it's been... By the way, you ever see a field after 100 plus years? Can you imagine, like, you know, the shrubs and the trees and everything is all mixed together. Uh, we had a dump uh, out in the back of one of our farms. And, you know, after just like 20 years, you couldn't even hardly see the dump. Can you imagine after 100 plus years in a city that had just been let go, basically? So people weren't living there. 
But everything was repaired. The people's hearts were prepared. And now the city needed to be reoccupied. Well, some were living there. It says leaders were living there. Uh, Chapter uh, 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the people weren't living there. So again, they needed to bring people back in. And you might say, why? Well, to make the city less vulnerable to attack, uh, to provide adequate personnel for the temple, because the temple now was reinstituted, it had been repaired, but now it was going to go full force. And, and just the fact of the Jerusalem is the symbol of the nation of Israel. You know, the, it should have, um, it, was, it was a symbol of national unity, let's say. So again, Nehemiah wants to bring the people and now uh, back to Jerusalem. Now you might say, well, doesn't didn't everyone want to live in Jerusalem? I mean, now I mean, you hear people, everybody around the world wants to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, Rosenberg, there, the guy that sends out that he just announced this week that he was moving to Jerusalem from the United States, and I'm like, really? I mean, but there's this thing in the heart of people. I want to go back to Jerusalem. But see, in that day and age, it wasn't like, it didn't have the, uh, the, the pull. I mean, they were in Israel, but as far as to literally live in Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. Um, the masses would have preferred to live outside of the city. No, no doubt in the capital, the cost of living was higher, just like in any city. There was a housing shortage, which we read about. Most likely jobs were not plentiful. And personal safety could not be guaranteed. The idea is this. Jerusalem had been leveled many, many, many times. Over the centuries, I forget how many times Jerusalem had been invaded and leveled. I mean, it's many, many, many times. And if you were a person and had a family and you had your sheep and your goats and you were out in the countryside, when you heard that the, uh, the invading army was coming, what would you do? You'd get your sheep and whatever you can and go up into the mountains. You could hide. If you lived in Jerusalem, you had to stay and fight. So do you see the difference there? In other words, moving to the city was a sacrifice. What you're going to hear about is a sacrifice. It's not like, oh, I get to live in Jerusalem. No, no, that was a burden. That's like me telling you, you know what, you're going to leave Almond right now, and you've got one week, and you're going to be moving to New York City, and you've got to live there. A lot of you would say, <laughs> Right? We're not used to that. And, and again, for them, it, it was even more than that. They, people were, you know, uh, armies had destroyed Jerusalem and would in the future. So living in, in Jerusalem was an act of personal and family sacrifice because when the man was called, the wife, the children. Well, let's look at it. Populating Jerusalem. Again, verse 1, it says, Now the leaders of the people who lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. So again, Nehemiah could have ordered, well, you go, you go, you go. But apparently he, he said, you know, there, it needed to be uh, voluntary. And it was going to be sacrificial, but they used the casting of Lot to determine which of the family units were going to be moving from the country to the city. Proverbs 16 says this, the Lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So it was a, an act of sovereignty. They were, you know, the casting of Lot wasn't just chance. It was, Lord, you determine by the casting of Lot which families you want to be living within the walls. 
And then look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And and commentaries have said, well, you know, the commentators have said, well, is this referring to verse 1 or is this a separate group? I think it's a separate group. I think after the 1 in 10, by the way, that's a tithe. It was like the people came back from the exile and and Nehemiah said, you know, we need to tithe our people and one-tenth of them need to move to Jerusalem, that holy city, that uh, apple of God's eye, as it were. But then apparently there was, verse 2, others, maybe patriotic motivation, maybe sacrificial motivation, but they volunteered, they willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It wasn't just mandatory. And that word, willingly, or some versions I think say voluntary, it it literally means to impel. It, It incites from within. The idea is they had this burning desire to do this for God. That's what, I mean, from within. It wasn't just to be said, you know, oh, I willingly, you know, like they wanted to be known. It wasn't about being known. They had this inward desire, this inward willingness, this inward, maybe you could say this, generosity. I want to serve there. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Because what was in Jerusalem well, it was part of, um, a lot of it had to do with the temple. You know, support of, uh, service to, temple, which is represented the, the worship of God. But, so they had these groups, some cast by lots, some willingly offered themselves, and they were moving back, and you say, well, how many were we talking about? Well, chapter 11 uh, records about 3,044. So 3, 000, around 3,050. And I, I tried to do some, and, and I got different numbers, but we're probably talking shy of 20,000 moving back into the city in that direct area. Okay. Uh, other ones were living outside in the country around Jerusalem in Israel, but these guys, you know, they estimate there was probably a hundred thousand total. A tenth would be ten thousand. Plus, you had willing volunteers, so you're, you know, and family. You know, you have wives and children and everything else. So again, you you have a, you know, ten thousand plus moving back into the city. All of a sudden, the city is is repopulated. It all had to do with God's will. It all had to do with sacrifice. Again, the people's chief concern was to live where God wanted them to live. You know, I thought about that. The chief concern that these people had was, where does God want me to live? In Jerusalem, around the Jerusalem, or in Jerusalem? Where does God want me to live? One guy said this, as one writer, the place for anyone to live is the place of God's appointment. Sometimes we don't think of it that way. We must be willing to live where he wants us to live. Again, whether it's <laughs> Alfred, New York, Alma, New York, Hornell, New York, Anastasia, New York. Well, my boy's just, how about Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia? How about this? Liberia, West Africa. See, we have to say, wherever God wants us to live, we are willing to live. Even something as simple as that. Are we willing to put our lives into the hands of God? Many times where we live is dictated by family. You know, dictated by our own desires. I, sometimes I catch myself and we talk about, well, where would we be when we t- retire? And, you know, you usually like focus on the warmest climate, you know. Wait a second, that's not biblical. Where does God want you to live? By the way, he does give us the desires of our hearts. I understand that. 
you know, Psalms 37. But we got to get this thing out of our mind that we are just trying to make it the easiest possible journey here on this earth. That's not what it's about. It's about sacrifice to God. Where do you want me to live, Lord? What group of people do you want me to have influence in? That's what they were saying. And they were sacrificially obedient in the process. So that's the first thing. We just need to be sacrificially obedient even where we live. Because again, those who moved in Jerusalem were going to have to, it was going to be harder for them and there were greater threats because if an army comes, they, st- they stood their ground. They didn't you know, flee the city. So are we sacrificially obedient to where God wants us to be, what God wants us to do, even where God wants us to live? The second thing is we see a, a list of Jewish citizens that come, came in. And, and, and again, because of time, we're just going to really hit it quick. But verse 3 talks about chiefs, or some of your versions say rulers of the providence, uh, lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on, the, on his property in, in their towns. And then he names them. In fact, he names a couple of the main ones. Verse 4, Athala, and Selu is in verse 6. Um, so you have rulers, verse 10 through 14, you have priests, 15 to 18, you have Levites, you can just go right down, you have gatekeepers and temple servants in 19 to 21, and certain officials appointed by the king in verses 22 to 24. You have all these different groups of people, by the way, doing all different types of things. Uh, uh, a ruler did different than the priest, did different than the Levites, did different than the gatekeepers, did different than the officials appointed Uh, to Artaxerxes back in Persia. Each person had their jobs, their responsibility, which, this is a good principle. Everything was done, what? Decently and in order. Everything was done decently in order uh, in the Lord's work here. I mean, Nehemiah, again, he he was the governor. He was the one that was able to decide. He could have even decided who would have moved to Jerusalem, but he chose to do the casting of lots. But I just find it interesting that, like 1 Corinthians 14 says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Every person had their job. Sometimes we get into a problem, especially in the church, wanting someone else's job, wishing for someone else's praise, someone else's prestige, you know, why can't I do this? And yet, Nehemiah systematically arranged the assignment of duties. Now, Now, just look at some of them. Verse 12. Some had to do with the uh, work of the house of the Lord. In other words, attended the sacrifices. Others were dependent on the protection of the city. Look at verse 14, the mighty men of valor. Verse 6, verse 8, the mighty men, the, val- the, the, the valiant ones, I think one version says. So some protected. See, some sacrificed, some protected. Others were responsible for providing the materials for the repair of the temple. Verse 16, the outside work. There was even a guy that was a leader of the praise, Metaniah, or Metaniah, Metaniah, I guess it is, Metaniah, verse 17, leader of the praise. There was a guy that was actually, you know, you're going to be the leader, the one who leads us in praise. No, I want to raise sheep. No, you're going to be the one who leads in praise. Another group guarded the gates, verse 19. Others provided oversight for the ministry of the temple, verse 22. Uzi oversaw the Levites. You had others that uh, literally represented Jerusalem in the Persian court, verse 24. 
And so you, what do you get? You, you have all these different individuals with different responsibilities all coordinated to work together decently in order. And, and it was all put together by, I believe, Nehemiah. Which reminds us that we need leadership. We need leadership that can do things decently in order. Leadership that can coordinate action. I, I just find it so interesting that within 10 months, within 10 months from the time that Nehemiah finds out about the disrepair of the wall, all these events have happened. 10 months, less than a year. Because it was done decently in order. It was done with coordinated effort. When God's people are coordinated, much can get accomplished. But again, we have, to be, we have to use the gifts that God has given to us. The other principle is this, that each had a gift to use. Again, a different gift. I think of 1 Peter chapter 4, it says each has received a gift. And, and I've, I've, I made a big deal of it. It says a gift, not a gifts, not gifts, plural. A gift. The idea is when you were brought into the body of Christ at salvation, you were given a gift. A gift. In other words, you were given an ability supernaturally by the Spirit of God. And you say, well, what is the gift made up of? Well, it's the components that you see in uh, Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. You know, the, you know uh, some have a major uh, part of their gift is teaching and encouragement. Others is ruling. Others is the gift of mercies. Others is the gift of serving. But the idea, when I say gift, I'm saying the component. And it's kind of like making a cake. I, I like to think about making a cake. You know, what, what if you, uh, you know, in making a cake, I'm assuming that you use a lot more flour than salt. Is that correct? You wouldn't want to have a cup of salt and a teaspoon of flour. There was a major component because that's a cake. It's not brine for pickles. Well, when it, when it comes to how God, I believe, designed each one of us, Again, you can see this, how he uses the word gift in the singular, not plural. It's like each one of you are totally unique. Oh, yeah, I have the gift of teaching. No, no, I am unique in the sense I have the gift of teaching, plus along with that leadership ability. And some of you might say, well, not much encouragement, but some of you say, oh, a lot of encouragement. But the point is, is God designed it. And you are too. See, you're all, when it comes to the body of Christ, your gift is totally unique from everyone else. And, by the way, we are to learn from each other and actually do this, appreciate each other. It's hard sometimes to appreciate people that are different than you. Do you realize that in the marriage class, I've been ta- we've been talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know marriage. And, and, and what the today's, part of today's lesson was, do you really appreciate your spouse? Boy, this woman right here is a lot different than I am. The qu- don't say amen. The question is, <laughs> do I appreciate her? Well, let's take it into the body of Christ. Do you appreciate the gifts and abilities and the passions that your fellow believers have from God? Do you appreciate their differences? Well, 1 Peter 4, what I just read, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, the idea of varied grace in your life. Do you use your gift? And see, what we see here is a lot of people using their different gifts and abilities all for the purpose of glorifying God in Jerusalem. The other interesting thing that you see is these are, they, they are unnamed. They're the, 
as one as I would call them the faithful unknowns. The faith because yeah, you get a few names, but look at this. Look at go down to uh, chapter eleven, and you say verse six. It says, "And the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were four hundred sixty-eight valiant men." You don't get all the four hundred sixty-eight. You just get a couple people. Go down to verse eight, and the, his brothers men of valor nine hundred twenty-eight. There's a whole lot of unknowns right there. There's a whole lot of nameless people. There's a whole lot of people that were faithful to God that you don't even get their name. And even if you get their name, you don't know much about them, right? And you go right through there. I mean, of the 3,000 people, you only get a handful that you actually know. There's all these, these unknown, willing servants. And isn't that, isn't that how it is in, in the church of Christ? I think of one person. I'll mention her only because she was such a blessing, and I know she made such an impact, though you didn't hear much of her. Margie Stewart. I knew that lady was praying for me all the time. I'd get a letter from her periodically, a note, which would, you know, just kind of got me up to... Sp- See, really in one sense, unknown. Unknown as far as the faithfulness of her life in my life. I just... She wasn't flamboyant, but you knew that she was faithful, right? And there are so many people like that in the Christian, in the Christian life, in the Christian, in the church. Just serve, not flamboyant. In fact, their giftedness doesn't require that, and, but they are just faithful. They are consistent servants. And I, I, I think of the, the willing unknowns. You have all these hundreds of people that you don't even know their names, but you just know they were faithful. Are you like that? Are you really like that? I, I, is your heart driven towards like Corinthians 12 that says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, manifestation is the giftedness from the Spirit for the common good. Lord, I'm just so thankful that I'm in the body of Christ through the sacrifice of your Son. I just want to serve you by being faithful to you and serving your people. You serve as people for the common good. That's the body of Christ. I mean, is that why we're in service? I trust that that's why I serve. I hope that's why I prepare, takes long hours. Why? So I can get glory? No, because God has been so gracious to me, I just want to serve him by serving his people. Is that how you feel? By the way, if you say yes, are you serving? (laughs) I trust you are. By the way, sometimes you serve not by teaching a class. Maybe it's writing the note. Writing the note. How many of you have received a note and it was from someone and it was at the very perfect time you can remember? Anybody like that? Oh, I can go back many, many times where I get the note and it was like, wow, thank you, Lord, for putting on her heart seven days ago to write this note because it got here on, this, on the perfect time. You know, there's a lot of ways to serve the Lord. It's not necessarily always just teaching, leading. By the way, now we get to verse 25 to 36. We, we found out those who were residing inside of Jerusalem. Now, how about those outside? Villages surrounding Jerusalem. And really, if you do, and I'm not going to read it, but only to say this, if you go from 25 to 36, which is the end of the chapter, the, he basically covers uh, to the south, to the north, to the west. He just basically encompasses. These are the people that... And by the way, you needed those people. They were critical. Because you needed to have farmers that were raising sheeps that were going to be brought as part of the sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple. So everyone was needed. Those inside of Jerusalem were needed. Those outside of Jerusalem were needed. Everyone is needed. All of, you know, if you're doing God's will, 
All who do God's will are servants that who will, will be honored. You know, we just have to wait for the day of judgment. I think that's what I keep going back to. I don't know why, but this last few years, it just keeps reminding me. John, don't worry about as far as how, how you're perceived today. Live for the day that you stand before me. That's what he keeps saying. Live for that day that you stand before me. Live for that day of judgment. The bema, when you will have the potential of having great reward and great praise from your Lord. Live for that day. And for you, that's what I would encourage. Live for that day. Don't live for today. What people think, whatever else. You know, Romans 12, if you want to turn there, uh, I'm just going to read it, just the first six verses. You know, the first verse is very familiar. I appeal to you, therefore, oh, this is ESV. Um, I, uh, I, I wanted to re- read a different version. Um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that's how the new King James, but I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, that by testing you, that by testing you may discern. <laughs> it's hard to read other versions when you... But by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you among, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And you, and you just take that little thing. What does it mean to think more highly of yourself? It, basically, you can summarize it like this, independent thinking. Thinking more highly of myself says that I'm the center, you're not, I need to be served, I'm not going to serve you. It's independent thinking. You know, the center of pride is what? I. And so he says not to think more highly than he ought to think of of himself, but to think sober judgment. In other words, think correct judgment. Think judgment that's true, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and you see that in one body you have many members. Boy, I have all these different types of members. You know, fingers and hands and arms and, you know, blood vessels and everything. And it all works together. And all the members do not have the same function, thankfully, right? Thankfully, my heart is not here. It's here. You know, it doesn't have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ, according to grace given to us, let us use them. And then he names the gifts, but the idea is that you use them. Let us use them. By the way, that's in the italicized, not even the Greek text. It's just the assumed thing. If you have a gift, use it. Talk about poor stewardship, given something and not use it. And so we, we just take all of chapter 11. You have people in Jerusalem that are volunteer by casting by lots. They all are there out of a willing, sacrificial heart. You have other people in the, you know, around Jerusalem and in Israel, and they're raising the animals and providing the food for those in the city, and they're all working together just like a body. Coordinated effort. Praise God. Well, you get a bunch of sinners coordinated effort, praise God, right? Who are looking out for God's glory. Let's go to chapter 12. Chapter 12. And now he switched gears. Nehemiah switched gears and he talks about the priests. And now the, 
And these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. See, he's present tense. He's talking about 446. Well, now he's talking about Zerubbabel. That's like almost 100 years previous. And you've got to ask, why does he bring up all these people that came back with Zerubbabel? And he names them all off, I think, in verses 1 to 9. The priests and the Levites who came up 100 years earlier, or thereabouts. And then look at verses 10 and 11. There he names the, uh, the high priest after the exile. So he talks about the priests, the Levites, and now the high priest. And verses 12 to 26, the priests and the Levites after Zerubbabel. He basically catches up on history. All these names. A lot of them are not named. But the point is, is that all these people, and he goes all the way back to the first return. Remember, there's three returns, one under Zerubbabel, one under Ezra, and then the final under Nehemiah. But he goes all the way back almost 100 years and says, okay, these are the guys that returned. These are the faithful ones. And what was Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem from Persia? And you say, why, why do we have all these names? Our People's names important. I was reading a little uh, story about a small boy who asked his pastor about the plaque in the lobby of his church. And the pastor replied that it contained the names of all the people who died in the service. And the young man looked at him very serious. He said, which service? The 11 o'clock or the 730? <laughs> now, I, I think this is why he included these. This is why he inserted these names. In fact, I think Matthew Henry has, uh, um, has hit it. He was that old commentary, uh, commenter from uh, many hundred years ago. He said this, suggests that the register was, quote, to keep in remembrance those good men that future generations might know to who they were beholden under God for the happy revival and the reestablishment of their religion among Perhaps it is intended to stir up the posterity who succeeded them in the priest's office and inherited the, they might inherit the qualities and the advancements of that previous generation so that they might also be courageous and be men of faithfulness, end quote. And that was, I know that's old English, but the point is this, they look back. Hey, listen, there was a lot of faithful men. You're here in this city. This wall has been built. But there is a lot of people that have been faithful to get you to this point. You know, in America right now, we are forgetting history. It is so sad. We do not understand history. And again, if you don't understand history, what? You're doomed to what? Repeat it. We need to go back. Thank you, Lord, for how you have protected this country. The 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Well, here he's going back and saying, listen, let me show you the faithful men. You're here because of their faithfulness and how God worked through them. In other words, Nehemiah had a sense of history. Now, again, I know that the names were also important because it was going to be the lineage for finally the Son of God to come and he would die for the, the sins of the world and there needed to be a lineage going right back even to Adam. But I think even, even beyond that, I think it's important to remember those who have been faithful in previous generations, who walked with God. I mean, what is Hebrews? That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. 
You know, Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, verse 7, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And reverent fear constructed the ark. In, in each one of these, and Abraham, the, the father of faith, and then you see David, and sure they had their sins and their failures, but these were faithful men, faithful women, and and we need to remember that we're in a long line and, and now you're running the race and you're only going to run it for a few more years. Are you going to be faithful to the end? Or are you going to be like Samson? Oh, he might get to heaven, but he's going to... Or even David. I mean, when you think of David, the king, the great, you know, psalmist of Israel, failure. In uh, Hebrews 13, just a couple chapters later, the writer says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of, the, of their way of life and imitate their faith. Understand their way of life, but then he, then he says, but imitate their faith. <laughs> In other words, the right things that they did. Yeah, see, I could look at your life and you say, oh boy, you failed there. You failed. Or you could look at my life and say, boy, he failed there and he had that weakness. But imitate my faith, what, what I've done right. I think you can also do the same thing with people, I mean, of all church history. I mean, you could talk about John Calvin and Martin Luther. And each one of those, you can learn. I mean, Martin Luther, just one guy, stood up against the Roman church and basically one of his famous statements, here I stand. Although he probably said, here I stand. Because it was a fearful time. They could burn him at the stake. They could have done many, many horrendous things against him. And yet he stood in faith for God. But even, even of today, let's bring it right up to the present. And I, I know I can talk about them because they're up in Scroon Lake. Lee and Donna Ryan. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Learn from them, right? I know Bob and Barbara up there too for a... Learn, right? By the way, I can name a lot of you. I'm not going to. I don't want to embarrass whatever. Many of you are so very, very faithful... Learn from your leaders. Especially when you're about ready to do that sin and say, you know what, Lord, you can bring me through this. Because I've watched other men and women who are not perfect, but I see their example. I see their God, godly modeling. And I think that's, what he, that's why in chapters, chapter 12, all the way to verse 26, he, just, he brings up, I, I think he's bringing us up to speed and looking at it from a historical point of view and say, basically, that you could be faithful. <laughs> You ever get the feeling like, am I going to finish well? No, you can be faithful. You know, you mention certain people's names and they're just like this. What a disappointment. And yet you mention other people's names and you say, wow, how did they walk with Jesus in the midst of such hardship? And not just here. I mean, you, you read uh, missionaries and just faithful Christians. I don't want to always say missionaries and pastors. I mean, just many of you are just very faithful people walking with your God. You're, you're the willing unknown. Very, we don't even know the, your story. Oh, we know little bits and pieces, but we've watched you for year after year. And all I know is this. It's like the North Star. Your eyes are set on Christ. Because no matter what God brings you through, he proves your faith. By the way, that's why he brings you through that, right? I mean, those diseases and those hardships are not, they're not just for us. They're for the people that are watching us. 
to prove that our God is who we say He is, right? Right? And He's our North Star. He's the one that we... Everything is according to Him. And so we watch that person go through that, you know, disease or hardship or financial, whatever, and, and it's like, wow. And in my own heart as a, as a man, I think, wow, I can be faithful too. Because I've watched them. Their God, my God, was sufficient for their needs. He'll be sufficient for mine. And so, it's like Malachi the prophet. Or excuse me, Paul, the apostle, he says, be imitators. That's an imperative of me as I am of Christ. Be an imitator of me. Be a mimicker. It's literally the word mimic. Be a mimicker of me. Uh, as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. In other words, as I've passed the faith on, you continue to walk. Be an imitator of me. Or like Malachi the prophet in chapter 3, verse 16. I love this one. Even though Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And there was times where the Israel still dipped. But he said this in 3.16. Then those who, are, who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was given before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That book of remembrance. Some say that's the book of life. I think it's just, I think the book of remembrance is nothing more than, than uh, God reminding us through Malachi, you know what? I'm watching you. I watch every move you make. I make all, every thought you do, the words you use. I'm remembering. And when you're faithful, remember, I remember. Okay? I'm remembering the book of remembrance. And you will be rewarded, John, if you're faithful, not perfect, but faithful, willing to confess, willing to learn, willing to be teachable. John, I remember. Thank you, Lord. I'm glad you do. See, he has permanent memory of those who are faithful, those who are reverent to him and keeping his word, who's faithful in, in doing his word. He's put you through a lot of hard times. Some of you are going through really hard times. Is your God bigger than your hard times? Or do we come up to the wall? That's too big, God. Can't do it. I can't rejoice in you. I can't trust you. You put me through too much. No, book of remembrance. And then finally, let's just look at the last part. Boy, we're almost done. We're actually getting through this thing. Um, chapter 12, verse 30. Let's see, where is it? Where's the dedication of the wall? Verse 27. So he gets us all the way up. By the way, it is interesting that he talks about David, the man of God, in verse 24. It does mention him. Praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. David the man, he, he appears again, David the man of God, in verse uh, 36. You know, David's a great example. Boy, he, was he a, 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 just an unbelievable failure at a moment of his life? Yes, but you know what? He was a man of God. He, he, he ran right to God and did exactly what he was supposed to do as far as confess his sin and saw the bigness of God. And even though the kingdom started to crumble from that point on, the sin of Bathsheba, God is, or, uh, David is still known as the man of God. There's always uh, fresh starts and new beginners, be, beginnings for the, the people of God. But anyways, verse 27, we, uh, the, now the people uh, understand uh, 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 the legacy, the, the heritage. 
And now they're going to dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. And they sought the Levites in all their places. Let's look at just a few things. Um, you know, the Christian life is hard, isn't it? <laughs> yes, at times very difficult. And the people here had a hard life. I mean, again, many of them had come out from the exile, had traveled for two months, got to Jerusalem. Within just a few days, they were starting to work on the wall. Yeah, they, you know, they saw opposition by Sanballat, opposition by Tobiah. They had all the opposition, not opposition, just the hard work of rebuilding the wall. They went through the feasts and stuff like that. They went through the, the uh, confession. But, I mean, it was difficult. Now they needed to, one final praise service, as it were. You know, look at what God has done. In this wall, something that couldn't have been, was attempted for a, a more than a hundred years, got done in fifty-two days. Okay, absolute miracle, absolute miracle from God. So they're going to have a dedication service, and they sought the Levites. Let me just break this down into five parts. And this was going to unify the people. First of all, they gathered the worshipers. They sought the Levites in all their places. Because some of the Levites weren't in Jerusalem, they had to get them from the ex, you know, the the cities surrounding Jerusalem. And so they brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. Now notice this. With gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Um, Point is this. God wants his people to praise him. Right? Sometimes I minimize that. my, My whole family is musical. There's a moment in my life at points that I get a little bit angry. Not angry, jealous, jealous. But you know what? He wants all his people to worship him. So, he, so they make a special attempt. They're going to bring all the Levites in. All the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem. From the villages. Okay, and they named all the villages. Singers, singers, we need to sing. We need to, you, mean, you mean they actually organized their worship? Yeah, they were planning on having this great celebration. And we've got to get the singers here. Because worship is critical. In fact, I've been reading, I was telling you about it a couple weeks ago, this book by James McDonald, Vertical Church. And one of the things he said in there, which really was like, sometimes as a church, we start getting focused on just serving people. That should just be a byproduct. You know what our main purpose is? Worshiping Him. <laughs> Worshiping Him. In other words, our worship and our love for him is what drives us to serve each other, right? I mean, I can push and push and push. No, you need to be a Sunday school teacher. No, no, you need to reach out. You need to go to the hospital. You need to write that note. You need to pray more for each other. Come on, guys. How about this? Is your God big? Did he save you from hell? And then he placed you into a family and said, if you love me, what? Love each other. Oh boy, that's a great motivator, isn't it? Yeah, I'll expend myself for you. Why? Because you're great? No, actually, or let's put it in reverse. Will you serve me because I'm great? No, actually, I can be a very big disappointment. You serve me, hopefully, praying for me. Why? Because God is so great. And I is you, right? In other words, if I love you, there's going to be certain things that I'm going to do, excuse me, if I love God, I will love you by serving you. So you have worshipers. And then they, they prepare themselves for purity. Look at verse 30, and the priests and Levites purified themselves. That's probably referring to fasting, washing their clothes, because again, the Jewish law uh, had certain um, stipulations, and bringing sacrifice. In other words, the Levites and the priests, the religious 
leaders prepared themselves. And then look at verse, the second part of verse 30, and they purified the people. Hmm. Again, washing themselves, their clothes, and the gates and the wall. What do you mean the wall? Well, they probably did sacrifice and like in numbers and literally took and, and uh, purified the wall along the entire two and a half mile stretch. Slaughtered the animal, dipped the blood, and purified. You know, symbolically saying this, you know, it's not because of our efforts, it's because of the sacrifice of what you've done for us, Lord. So they purified. So all was necessary because why? Man is, man is, uh, man is a sinner. So they prepared, they got the singers, they're prepared. Now they got the pr- pr- uh, procession. And they appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. Two big choirs. Now, if you go down through there, uh, it's interesting. Ezra is one of the leaders. Nehemiah is the other. They have religious leaders mixed in there. They have civic leaders. And so do you have that particular? And what they basically do, they get the two choirs together. And uh, this is just the wall that they built. This is, the new Jer- this is New Jerusalem like today. But what they did is they, they, they gathered everybody in Jerusalem. And then the one, uh, Ezra's group, started with the dung gate. And they would go all the way up to the temple. And then Ezra, or, uh, Nehemiah's started, they say, either the valley gate or the dung gate. And they go all the way singing to the temple. In other words, they covered the entire uh, wall, all the wall, all the entire uh, walls of Jerusalem, and they just go together in two big groups to the very bottom, and they work one clockwise, one counterclockwise, and they're just singing praise to God, basically consecrating all that He has done for them to Him. In other words, we're not taking the credit. This is all of you, and you might say, well, what were they singing? Uh, you know, the Psalms. Probably more specifically, Psalms 126, because that psalm was literally written after the exile, after they came back. But it was all had to do with praising God, worshiping God. And that's what you see in verses 40 43. Both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. That's after they walked around the, the walls. And I and half of the officials with me. And look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifice that day. Uh, by the way, not the burn offering. Most likely it was a thanksgiving offering. That was an offering that they could participate in. Uh, part of it was sacrifice. Part of it they ate. It was, it was for joy. See, they had already purified themselves. Now they're rejoicing in who God is. It is good to praise the Lord. Sometimes I miss that. It is good to step back and say, Lord, you are so great. You can even look at your own sin and the failures of your life and say, Lord, I, but thank you that you are a forgiving God. Thank you that you're patient, that you're forbearing. But then you look at the, the, um, the strides that God has made. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. And, I, and I've been able to be faithful because you're faithful. And, and, and I'm sure they're just, they're, you know, it's like if we walked around this church and said, man, just thank you, Lord, for just giving us a place. These guys had just had it happen within months, Right? All this happened to them in months. Everything from a guy showing up and saying, we're going to rebuild the wall. And we got together, and even though there was opposition by Sanballat and Tobiah and all the opposition of the Arabs, they just kept moving forward. At the end, their hearts got right, and they were excited, and they were walking. I'm sure they're walking around this, man. And then they finally, you know, they got to their point, because remember they were portioned off 41 sections. 
Oh, I, I remember. Yeah, yeah. And in and, 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 and 42 days, we were able to finish that. And then it says that some of them also helped others. And I'm sure as they were walking along, you know, man, look at what God... Remember when Tobiah... Do you remember Sandbell? Where is that fiend anyway? You know, he was still around. And they were just praising God. Not like this. Man, look at what we did. Look at how great God is. And they did great sacrifice. Because, by the way, when your heart is in love with God, you want to sacrifice for him. Now, they're talking about literal animal sacrifice. Great sacrifices that day. And notice what happens in their life. And they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice. That's in the PL. That's in the intensive. With great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced because they're with them. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Boy, there seems to be a reoccurring word there. <laughs> and joy. I think there's three verbs and two nouns. Joy, rejoice, they rejoice. When you're walking with God, there should be joy in your heart. What did he say in chapter 8, verse 10? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And they, they as, you, as it will, uh, as you might experience God right there, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I, I want to be careful when I talk about experience. I'm just saying, they knew who their God was and how great he was. And five times in one verse, joy or rejoiced is, and that's an indicator of our life, right? Are, are, we, are you a joyful person? Are you rejoicing in who God is? Not in your greatness, in his. They were walking with God. And then, and then finally in chapter 12, verses 44 to 47, they establish... Uh, men were appointed, verse 44, over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes. And it all has to do with the, the temple. Worship. In other words, you would almost think that the chapter would end in verse 43. All the joy and rejoicing and God is so great. And look at what he's done in our lives. But then Nehemiah says, but then I appointed over the storerooms. And it says, Judah rejoiced, verse 44, and they performed the service of their God and the gatekeepers and, and according to the commandment of David and his, and his son Solomon. See, David is mentioned a third time there. For long ago in the days of David, that's fourth time, Asaph, there were directors and singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God and all of Israel in the days of Jerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for Aaron. In other words, you give to the Levites, and they gave a tenth to the high priest. And, and why did he go back to history again? Because he was saying, listen, if you want to be blessed by God, you have joy. And when you have joy, you want to give. So I think he ends that last part about the temple saying, listen, and this doesn't have to be just today that we're joyful. We're going to give so that this continues on in Jerusalem because we need to, we need to hear from God and we need uh, God's people, the Levites and priests, to continue the sacrifices. We want to continue to walk with God and therefore we're willing to continue to give. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength, no longer is it ourselves. Because again, praise and worship produces joyful giving. Praise and worship produces joyful giving. When you walk with God, then you see giving not as a burden but it's a privilege. And so I think that's why he names it at the end. They want to give, they want to give. When you see the greatness of God and you see what he's done in your life, you want to give. You want to give your, your voice and praise and worship and you want to give what God has given to you anyways because it's all his. 
and say, Lord, I want to I share because that's joy, right? But let me just end with this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What do you mean joy? Again, knowing who God is. You know, you look at the Lord and you say, yes, I am a sinner and I've been rescued from the pit of hell, literally. The miry pit. And as I look at God, that produces joy in my heart. I am no longer under the weight of sin. Now again, if you're not a believer, you are under the weight. The wrath of God abides on you, John says. But as you have received Christ as your Savior, but even as a sinner, I mean, even as a saint, even as a saved one, sometimes we get you know, caught in that mire of you know, that pit. And man, you know, my anger or my lust or my jealousy or my competitiveness or my comparing or, you know, your whatever, you know, your worry, your anxiety, your fear weighs you down. And you know what the joy of the Lord is your strength is? And you are a forgiving God. And there are brighter days ahead if I walk with you. That's the joy of the Lord right there, right? The joy of who the Lord is can be your strength. Oh, I have failed and wandered off the path, but Lord, you're bigger than I am, and you're gracious, and you can bring me back, and you can bring me back to such a way that I can walk with you consistently. So if you're in this pit, the joy of the Lord can be your strength. But now, how about the other side? And I'm walking with Jesus, and sometimes you get this ungodly thought, and you know what? Just around the corner, there's going to be disaster. You know what the joy of the Lord there is? That he's bigger than any trial, any suffering that we go through, he is bigger than I am. And therefore, I can go through that with confidence. I can go through that uh, knowing that he will provide. See, that's the joy of the Lord. So whether I'm in the pit or even walking with him, the joy of the Lord is, you are going to guide me. You will sustain me. You are, this keyword sufficient. You are absolutely sufficient. And therefore, because you are sufficient, the joy and the strength that I have is not in myself, but is in him. Isn't that true? And that's what they're rejoicing over. Man, they have just been brought through all this. But, but listen, Sanballat is still there. Tobiah is still there. The Arabs are still there. They're still wanting to destroy them. The, the end of the road is not yet. They're not in heaven. They still got battles to fight. They still got sins to conquer. They're not always going to be uh, faithful themselves, but they know this, that God is faithful. You believe that in your life? Yes, no matter what he takes me through, he is sufficient and he will give me the grace to endure in such a way that I can be pleasing to him. I can glorify him. I'm telling you, that is an easy statement to make and I have to convince myself biblically that that is true because some of us live in fear. Maybe in the past, whatever is the future, but we live in fear, and fear is the opposite of joy. See, anxiety and fear and worry is the opposite of the joy of the Lord is your strength. So my question is this, are your eyes focused on yourself and how you're going to provide for you? Spiritual strength, emotional strength, physical strength, financial strength, or are you saying, Lord, I'm just releasing it to you. I am your servant and I'm going to find my joy, and I'm going to find my hope, and I'm going to find my strength only in you. And forgive me for those times, and I can name them, when I've turned my eyes to myself as being the provider. You're the provider, and I want you to be the one exalted in my life.